Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Bible Quest. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation today. We have made a good bit of progress. We're in Revelation, the 17th chapter today. Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is with us and in a little bit different location in his house than he usually is, but we're glad to have him anyway. <laughs> good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon from the bedroom of Chase and Rebecca Byers. It's good to see you guys. All right, very good. And uh, we have Joe Works, our resident expert on the book of Revelation. And uh, we are happy to have him today because he is going to kind of lead us through Revelation 17, 18, maybe 19. Who knows how far we'll get today. But we'll start with um, a little bit of review. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, good, to, good to be with you both again. Thankful for this opportunity. <laughs> So, um, do you want to, <laughs> Chase crack me up with an off-camera comment? <laughs> so let's just go ahead and move into Revelation 17. Um, uh, maybe highlighting a, a little bit of reviewing just really quickly um, uh, this <laughs> section, um, uh, just so that Jeff can get his composure back. Um, uh, so remember that we had these bowls that were poured out in chapters 15 and 16 uh, that were judgments. Again, I believe intended to, uh, one, show God's glory, also bring about judgment upon uh, those evildoers. And then we zero in on this immoral woman. We contrasted her with the virtuous woman of uh, chapters 12 and 13 uh, previously. And so this woman is immoral. She's murderous. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. And she is riding on this beast. Um, uh, and so it's really just a, a very grotesque and powerful scene. The beast is described for us in uh, chapter 17, verse 7 and following. The, the beast represents two different things. Uh, it says that the beast represents seven mountains in verse 9 and also seven kings. And so uh, that, that's what the, um, the, 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 I'm sorry, the seven heads represent, the seven mountains and the seven kings. And five have fallen, one is, another is going to come in a short time. And then the eight that comes from the seven, verses 10 and 11, I presented my thoughts on that, that we have five have fallen, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The king, the emperor that is currently reigning in Rome would be Vespasian when the book was written. His son, Titus, is going to become king, but only going to reign for a short period of time. That would be the seventh. And then the eighth would be Domitian. And yeah, that's already... I've already confused this enough that Chase has a question. <laughs> no, I just think it's worth, so like if people are listening to past episodes and past podcasts that we've done, I think it's good to just take a second and ask, why don't we do that same kind of research in other books of the Bible? You know, like this is something that if, if you would read the text uh, of ch chapter 17 of Revelation, you're not going to come up with that if you don't know that kind of history. And so when does that kind of research have its place in Bible study and when it when does it not? Maybe that's too off the wall, but I, I just think maybe that's worth discussing for a second. I, I think it's a valid question. You know, so in this text, it 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 would appear to me, my conclusion is it's it's begging us to investigate. Five have fallen, one is, you know, it's giving us details there. Sometimes you come across the text, there's no details, there's no context. We could uh, have suppositions, but then we're kind of left to, to wonder. There's some value in doing that sometimes, like which Pharaoh was ruling during the time of Joseph or during the time of Moses? 
you know, people do those studies and, and sometimes that's helpful, um, uh, but, but there's not a lot of information there to, to work from. Um, uh, and, but in this text, I think one of the interesting things or important things to remember is that the original recipients of this, they wouldn't have had to break out any history books. Right. You know, it, it was current history. It was current events for them. Right. Um, uh, you know, they, they knew who had just died, that Nero had just died. They knew that Vespasian was reigning. Now, they may not know that Titus is going to and he's going to reign a short time. That, that information right here, because that's something that's going to be in the future, according to uh, verse 10, um, uh, that, that would just be strengthening of their faith when uh, that seventh king, Titus, son of Vespasian, comes along and he only reigns for two years. And they'd be like, ah, that's exactly what John said was going to happen. And then the eighth Domitian. And uh, he is uh, this beast, this beast reincarnated, uh, going back to uh, chapter 13. Really good question. Uh, I think sometimes it's helpful to, to investigate those things. And when you're in prophecy, you can do that. When you're reading good. those kinds of things, it is okay to say, well, since that's a prophecy, I wonder when that happened. And I think you do the same thing. Like I'm thinking about the judgments on Tyra in, in Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28. And it makes you think, well, surely that happened at some point in history. And when you go and look in the history books at Tyra, you see when Alexander the Great went and did his conquest, and it matches up with some of the things that was prophesied about um, Tyra. So for what it's worth, I think it's just good in general prophecy to, to take a second and realize, well, if these things took place, I bet there's a place in history where this matches up. And it's the same thing in Matthew 24 with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and other places. Yeah. So. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 with the statue that has the four different kinds of metals or the four beasts of Daniel 7, you know, we're get, or Daniel 8, you know, we're told as the Medes and the Persians. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's when we're given some of that information again, but that fits into prophecy. I like that. Uh, that's a really good distinction to make. Uh, that would be a key time uh, to research. Good. So that catches us up to... Uh, Chapter 17 and verse 12. Somebody want to read 12 through 18? And the ten horns that thou sawest are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one mind, and they give their power and authority unto the beast. These shall war against the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and they also shall overcome that are with him, called and chosen and faithful. But he says unto me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these shall hate the harlot and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and shall burn her utterly with fire. For God did put in their hearts to do his mind and to come to one mind and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God should be accomplished. And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay. And so the 10 kings are, the, uh, they, they have authority with the beast. Um, uh, they're not on par. They're serving the beast. I view these, I, I think the, a good possibility would be that these are little kingdoms that are subject to Rome. 
I don't know if there are literally 10 or if 10 is a representative number. Um, it, we're kind of in that situation where we don't have much more information there that I'm aware of at least. We do have 10 being used earlier in the book of Revelation. You'll have tribulation 10 days in Revelation yeah. chapter two to the church at Smyrna, where clearly it just seems to be, uh, look, this is not a vague thing. It's a, it's a smallish time that you're gonna have this persecution. Um, but it's a defined time, and maybe it would be something like that here. Yeah, yeah. And, and we do know that Rome allowed other kingdoms to remain as long as they would pay their taxes and be subject to Roman law. You can think about King Herod, for example, and others like that, mm -hmm. um, uh, who were kings along with the Roman emperor. And so that, that would be my thought there. Um, uh, notice when we get down to verse 16, they're actually going to turn on the beast. They're going to turn on the beast, and they're going to turn on the woman. Um, uh, there's going to be infighting within the, the Roman Empire, it seems, from, from that passage. Let, let, me, let me back up just a little bit. Maybe you can expound just a little bit on this. It says about these ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority as kings. So would your thought be, and, I, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, and then you can spit them back out or whatever you want to do it, but would, this, would the idea then be these are, as you suggested, kings who run— who rule under the authority of the Roman Empire, they don't have a kingdom of their own independently, but they do have authority as kings, like you mentioned King Herod. Is that what you would think yeah. is the significance of that phrase? Yeah, yeah, because I, I think maybe the, the, the way that I look at that emphasis is that they're not going to be in succession after this beastly king. You know, like when we look at Daniel 2 or Daniel 7, and we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, these 10 kings, they are under the, 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 the king that we were talking about, the Domitian and, and so forth. Yeah, so there's but, some yeah, more. I, I think that's exactly right. Okay. Um, and they're going to make war in verse 14. And this seems odd. They're going to make war with the lamb. Um, uh, you know, well, Jesus has been dead and resurrected and ascended a long time ago. How are they going to make war with the lamb? Um, because this is a spiritual warfare. This is a spiritual battle. And, um, and we uh, saw in the, in the first half of the book of Revelation, the dragon, after he was cast down, the devil went to make war with the woman and with her seed. Right. And, and then the next thing we see is him giving his authority to the sea beast and then the, the beast up out of the earth. And, and um, so once again, here, I guess we're talking about that same war. Yes. Yeah. And, and we were already introduced to this land back in Revelation 14 and in verse one, he's standing on Mount Zion. In other words, he is the king. But they're going to try to, you know, there's, there's this battle of wills here, battle of the kings. And so they're going to fight against the lamb, but the lamb is going to overcome them. And I'm trying to remember one of the, oh, I have to go back about 30 years, a, a, a book that I read on Revelation that really emphasized this point, that Revelation 17, 14 is like the key verse or the hub of the, the book of Revelation. These will make war with the lamb and lamb will overcome them for he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Uh, I just think that that's a really, if, if you're going to try to remember any point about Revelation and you're stuck with just remembering one, I think this is a great one. You know, there's the, this is a spiritual battle. Jesus is going to overcome and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. You know, 
think back to chapters two and three, the promises that were given to the, the seven churches. If they will remain with Jesus, if they, if they will overcome like Jesus overcame, um, uh, then they will sit on thrones with him and so forth. Would you be thinking of worthy is the lamb? That is not the one, but uh, does one. that make that point as well? I don't know. I, I was just grabbing, just thinking yeah. through my library, wondering what book you had in mind. But we, we got the good book here, so let's stick with it. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. And so then we have another interpretation, inspired interpretation for us in verse 15. The waters that you saw, you know, the, the harlot is sitting on the waters. And even back in chapter 13, the beast came up out of the water, right? And what does the water represent? It represents peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so this, um, uh, the, the harlot sits ruling over the, the world. And uh, then uh, she's also identified in verse 18 as the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so if there were any question about who we were dealing with thus far, it seems like 17, 18, verses 17, chapter 17, verse 18, would, would really settle that for us. In John's day, who is the only city that's reigning over the kings of the earth? I think it has to be Rome that yep. we're, we're dealing with here. Yep. And so all of this is the introduction to, uh, to chapter 18. Remember, the idea was that uh, John was going to be caught up and uh, he was going to see uh, who this is and what's happening. And so in uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, can I read that? Yeah. After these, oh, go ahead, Chase. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was um, illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she is paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. So, wow. Um, this is just so many uh, allusions and quotes from the Old Testament. Um, uh, so this angel appears and uh, begins to cry out in verse 2, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen. Uh, that's a quote from Isaiah 21 and verse 9, um, where, as I understand Isaiah 21, that is a pronouncement of future judgment against the, the literal Babylon. Um, uh, and so John is again using Old Testament language to describe this, this new Babylon, this new world power, Rome. 
Uh, I think, again, chapter 17, verse 18, we're talking about Rome, but he, he calls it as Babylon because what's going to happen to Rome is what happened to Babylon. And uh, Bab Rome has then, uh, this, this Babylon has affected the world, and it's done all these different things. Verse 3, the nations have drunk of the wine and the wrath of the fornication. The kings have committed fornication. The merchants have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Uh, verse 3. And then, she, so she's, she's being pronounced as being fallen. And uh, then the cry comes in verse 4 to the saints, get away from her step back um uh, come out of her my people lest you share in her sins unless you receive her plagues if you join in her sins you're going to join in the punishment that's connected to that and so there's fair warning that is given there and without much of a surprise in jeremiah chapter 50 you have jeremiah saying these same things or the lord saying very similar things in jeremiah 50 and in verse 8 Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, be like the rams before the flocks, for behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon, an assembly of great nations from the north country, and so forth. So they're going to be punished, they're going to be plundered. Jeremiah 51 and verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon, every one of you save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for the time of the Lord's vengeance, he shall recompense her. And then also verse 45 of Jeremiah 51, uh, my people go out of her midst, let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. And so just three really quick references there in Jeremiah 50 and 51, that is almost the, what we have here in Revelation 18 is almost quotes, it, I, I would suggest that it is quotes uh, from her, at least partial. Um, and the idea is that, listen, this judgment is going to come upon Rome you need to not be a part of that. Very similar warnings to what was given to some of the churches in chapters two and three. They were becoming like the nations around them, if I could borrow from First Samuel language. Um, Rome is going to be judged. You Christians need to separate yourselves from, uh, from that. Similar language is used in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter six, you know, uh, what part has Christ with Belial and, and that sort of thing. Um, a warning, you know, and th this is just another one of those timeless or eternal truths. You know, if, if we join in with the world, we're going to be judged with the world. There's um, a, as you're connecting this with Old Testament ideas here and, and Old Testament language, if we could, um, can we go back to the end of chapter 17 when he's talking about uh, these kings that don't have a kingdom, but they are, they have authority as kings and they're going to rebel against the Lamb. In verse 17 of chapter 17, it said, For God did put in their hearts to do his mind, and to come to one mind, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God should be accomplished. So I have a thought here, but do you see in that the idea that while these kings are rebelling and they're fighting against the Lamb, Ultimately, it's God who is bringing them together for this climactic judgment. Was that right? Very much so, yeah. So in, in the Old Testament, we, we see that idea. Um, we see the prophets talking about the coming of the, the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. And then they look just beyond that, and they see a time when the enemies of God's 
people, the enemies of, of the Messiah and the enemies of the Messianic kingdom would uh, be gathered by God and God would judge them. So for example, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, you have the picture of the pouring out of God's spirit and, and the one king who would rule over God's people. All of that, of course, anticipating the Christ coming and the church being established. And then you get to chapter 38 and you have these various nations that are, that are used to represent the enemies of God's people. And it says in verse eight, after many days, you will, well, let's start in verse four. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army and horses and horsemen. And so God's saying to these nations, I'm going to bring you. And then in verse eight, after many days, you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored. So they're going to come against the restored people of God, which would be Christ's kingdom, the church. They're going to come against that. And it goes on and it, and it explains, this is not to say they're, they have no free will. It goes on to talk about what's in their mind. They're seeking an opportunity to, to plunder, to take advantage uh, of God's people. Um, and then again, in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, you have this prophecy of the pouring out of God's Spirit that we see beginning to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Peter quotes this chapter in Joel 2.28. Uh, but then after you get past that establishment of the Messianic kingdom, pouring out of God's Spirit, then it says in chapter 3, verse 1, for behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, language referring to the to the new Jerusalem, I will, God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat means Yahweh will judge or Jehovah will judge. And so God gathers them for judgment. And um, again, you know, it's a picture of people who are the enemies of God's people having their own agenda but God calls them together and, and brings them to judgment. So it's an interesting picture. We get to the book of Revelation, and of course, this idea of God judging the nations, everybody wants to jump ahead in, in the future and think that's that they, they need to watch for that on NBC or in the USA Today or something like that. But it's talking about the same thing in the prophets in the book of Revelation, as best I can tell. And it's something that's anticipated early on in the book of Revelation, when John writes to the churches, the seven churches, and he says, I'm a sharer in the tribulation or the persecution with you, we've got to overcome. And then he goes on and the Lord's saying, here's what I'm going to do about it. And he's going to bring these nations that are under the umbrella of Rome and that are in opposition to the kingdom of God, and he's going to bring judgment on them. Uh, yeah, I think it's really helpful to, to, to recognize. Um, and... Uh, you're even going to see that um, I referenced a couple of those passages in uh, Jeremiah 50 and 51. Yep. And, and I think you see that same idea even there of uh, the enemies coming against Babylon. And as you stated, God is the one who is raising them up um, uh, to, to punish them. Um, uh, so um, Joe, Jeremiah uh, 50 uh, verse 14 uh, put yourself in Babylon, put yourself in array against Babylon all around, all who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. And so, yeah. Sorry, I, um, I just, as we, as we come to look at this section, I've been just, as you guys been talking, thinking about 
how all that does still sound familiar. Like as you, as you think about verses four and five, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. It's consistent in the Old Testament. It's consistent in the New Testament where God is saying you are to be separate. And I, I know you're going to talk about that here in a little bit with the first Peter tie-in. Um, but it doesn't matter how wicked our nations get. The expectation for us is, is still the same. You're called out of that. You're, you're to be different. And I think we get selfish sometimes, and we like to think that our generation is worse than one's past. Uh, I hear people say that all the time. Man, things are so bad. Things never have been as bad as they are now. And that's, that's just simply not true. Things, things have always been bad. Sin has always been rampant in the nations. And there is something comforting still in Revelation 17 for us when we zoom out and say, we still know that we're supposed to be different. And we know that there's judgment coming on those nations. You, you know, you're, you're right, Chase, about people's perspective. People have this perspective. It's never been this bad. What they really mean is it's never been this bad in my lifetime in the society that I have experienced. But our experience is so limited, both geographically and chronologically or historically. Uh, we, we extrapolate from what the, the decline we may have seen in our lifetime, in our circumstances, and we suppose that uh, it's worse than it's ever been anywhere in the world before. And I think you're, you're onto something when you say, no, it, there have been various times when it has been really bad in various places. Well, but, and I'm specifically thinking about verse five, when it says her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. You know, as we look out at our nation, like I would say, our sins have piled up yeah. as high as heaven. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, I'm sorry if that was too off topic, but it, it really is. No, I think it's an important perspective because that's the thing. We get in the book of Revelation and people do start saying, it must be talking about right now because this is the end times because it's worse than it's ever been. Well, it may be the time when the Lord's coming back, but I think that that's not what the book of Revelation has been talking about up to this point. Um, and, and we don't have enough of a perspective to really compare how the whole world is at this moment as say how the whole world was at various other points in history. Right. And that's one of the powerful things about the way the book of Revelation is written. Well, I believe we have a lot of information, overwhelming information about it being in the first century, being about Rome, you know, dealing with those seven churches that are identified, but it is written in such a way that it fits any generation, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Pol Pot in, uh, in Cambodia or, you know, Hitler in the late 30s and, and you know, the way Europe looked and so forth. You know, there's always been evil men who rule, who do horrible, horrible things. And so various generations, various cultures and societies have faced these, uh, these beasts that, that, that are being described. It's really powerful how this, when we read it, I think we need to read it as the original recipients read it first, but then there is, it's easy to make proper applications. Good. So you have this statement made in verse seven. Um, uh, and again, I'm, I'm skipping several things I know, but Revelation 18, seven, um, uh, that she's going to receive her judgment because she says, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. And yeah. is that from ahead. the Old Testament? Yeah, Isaiah 47, 
Yeah. Okay. And guess who says it in Isaiah 47? Who, who's, you know, just like Jeremiah 50 and 51, just like Isaiah 21, you know, Isaiah 47 is about Babylon again. And so he keeps pulling out these various references wow. in the Old Testament regarding Babylon, uh, Isaiah 47 and in verse 8. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell secretly, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no else beside me. I shall not sit as widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. <laughs> that's that's just what huh. the, the Rome is saying. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I sit a queen, I am no widow. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, and and she is going to, you know, she, she thinks there's nobody who can bring me down. And God says in verse eight, tomorrow, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's <laughs> one day, you know, that's all it takes for the Lord. Uh, the pride goes before a fall. Wow. Uh, how we need to learn that lesson ourselves. There, there is, there is a woman. I don't, I don't have any, any idea that the Lord or that John had this woman in mind, but there is a woman in the old Testament who was a widow, and you could say a queen, and who was rather arrogant. Um, I'm thinking of Jezebel after Ahab had been killed, and how she sat in the window and taunted Jehu, um, apparently not not uh, looking upon herself as, uh, as, well, I don't know what she was thinking, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe that picture is partly in view here. I like your, your connection to language in jeremiah that's obvious um, well, but, but I, I think you're you're right with jezebel go back a little bit earlier than jehu and think about the way that she spoke to elijah or or, yeah. or about elijah you know elijah did some things to her prophets she is going to kill elijah she's going to be victorious and then all of a sudden she becomes what she becomes a widow and she becomes childless and then she yes. is punished yeah, yeah I, I think that's very fitting to, to make that connection um, and so the Lord is the one who's going to bring this about in, uh, in verse 8. Well, how about 9 through uh, 20? And the kings of the earth who, am I in the right place? Yes. Yep. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived wantonly with her shall weep and wail over her when they look upon the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her tor torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour is your judgment come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore, merchandise of gold and silver and precious stone and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and every vessel of ivory and every vessel made of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and ointment and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and merchandise of horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men and the fruits which thy soul lusted after are gone from you and all things which were dainty and sumptuous are perished from you and men shall find them no more at all the merchants of these things who were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she that was arrayed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stone and pearl, for in one hour so great riches is made desolate. And every shipmaster and every one that sails anywhere and mariners and as many as gained their living by sea stood afar off and cried, cried out as they looked upon the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city, 
and they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, wherein all that had their ships in the sea were made rich by, were made rich by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. Rejoice over her, you heaven and you saints and you apostles and you prophets, for God has judged your judgment on her. Okay, so a lot, a lot was just read here, but it's easily breakdownable. Is that a word? Uh, it's easy now. to break down this section here. Notice in verse 9, it's the kings of the earth. In verse 11, it's the merchants of the earth. And then in verse 17, it's the shipmaster. So we have three different groups who are speaking here in regard to this great city being destroyed. In verse 9, what is it that the kings of the earth are doing? What's their emotion? They're weeping and wailing. Yeah. And in verse 11, what's the emotion of the merchants of the earth? Weeping and mourning. And the shipmasters down in verse 19? Same. Yeah, exactly. And in verse 10, the kings of the earth, where are they standing? So far off. They don't want to, they don't want to get caught up in this what right. devastation. Yeah. And the merchants of the earth, where are they standing in verse 15? Uh, far off. Same thing. The they fear her torment. And the shipmasters, where are they standing in verse 17? Uh, again, they are standing afar off. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants a part of this. <laughs> yeah. It, is the idea, is there learning from the judgment of Rome? Is that, is that the idea? You know, I, I think one of the points that could be made is, what is it that God has just said to the saints? Separate yourself. Get away from her. Listen, even the people of the world know this. You know, uh, we, yeah. got, we got to back away from, the, from this city. They've defied God. Everybody else is backing away. God's people needs to have the, the wisdom, that the, of the, the shrewdness of the world. We, we need to be wiser than that. So, yes. so, and, so go ahead, Chase. Oh, and it, well, and judgment, historically, judgment is supposed to serve as an example to other people. I yeah. mean, that's exactly what crucifixion is. Crucifixion was a way to throw, and that's why they would put the inscription above someone's head, to so the people walking by would be like, "Okay, well, I don't want to do what that guy did because look where he ended up." And this this point, Joe, you just it got me excited. It makes me want to go back and read all the other judgments that God has handed out in the Old Testament and New Testament, and learn those lessons as I look from afar, as I look from a distance, and try to learn for myself so that I don't make the same mistakes. So, yeah. so here's the thought that comes to my mind. You know, we, we stress that the book of Revelation is not primarily a, prof, a prophetic roadmap to, to geopolitical events today. But the right. fact is the lessons that are being taught in the book of Revelation have relevance and are applicable today. And so you think about Rome, this great city that, that, that the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that, uh, that controlled the world in such a way that merchants could do business all across the Mediterranean. You could have ships go from Alexandria, Egypt, all up to what would be modern day Turkey and drop off wares and pick up wares and go to Italy and drop off wares and pick up wares and sail back to Caesarea. And, and so you had this merchandise moving all over the world and everybody's getting rich off of all this trade. And it's all in their minds, thanks to Rome. And now Rome's going down and everybody's, oh no, 
And then you think about our world today, and it, has there been over the last century some power that has brought great wealth, great economic wealth to so much of the world, as long as the world would tie themselves into the United States of America and its influence throughout the world, everybody wanted to have a hand in what the United States of America could bring to them and share in the wealth. And, and, and then as, as the United States of America falls apart, there are those nations that kind of want to distance themselves. And, and at the same time, they're mourning. Oh, no. When the United States of America goes into recession, the whole world goes into recession. Um, and, and so then when you see the, the, the potential for the fall of this country, the whole world's going to mourn. And Joe, you made this point. You said God's people are supposed to separate themselves. And, and here in this passage, even those of the world who are being enriched by Rome were wanting to separate themselves. And that's a lesson to God's people. Right there, I think, is a lesson for us today. God's people today need to look at this country and its mores, and we need to separate ourselves from it. And by that, I mean, what I mean is we need to quit compromising for sake of material wealth and, and gain. Uh, we need to quit compromising with the immorality that, that is propagated by the dominant culture in our nation. And we might look around at some other peoples who are ungodly people and see them kind of wanting to separate themselves and say, you know what, maybe that's an example for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and power and might is, is actually, the, the world is quite frail, fragile, and, uh, and, and, and uh, flickering. Uh, there, I got my three Fs in. Um, uh, Look at what's the adjective that's given regarding the city in chapter 17 and verse 18. Great. Yeah, she's a great city. Notice what the what do the kings of the earth call her in verse 10? Great. What do the merchants call her in verse 16? Great. And what do the shipmasters call her in verse 19? Uh, well, verse 18, great, right? And verse 19, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, both. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, 18 and 19. And then, you know, so this great city, she sits as queen. She'll not, you know, it, everything is all about power for her. And what did the Lord say? How long was it going to take to throw her down? An hour. Uh, yeah. It, well, it says in verse 18 of, of uh, uh, 18, 8, uh, therefore her plagues will come in, in one day. Uh, oh, one day. I'm sorry. Uh, well, no, but then in verse 10, what are the kings of the earth? How long do they say it lasted? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, an hour. And then again, in uh, verse uh, 17, the beginning of verse 17, still talking about the, king, the merchants mm -hmm. of the earth for in one hour. And then the shipmasters yeah. in verse 19, in one hour. So you have five different statements or, or four different statements that are, that are stated the kings of the earth weep and lament, stand at a distance, say, alas, alas, a great city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And then this, th those same four statements are made by all three groups, the kings, the merchants, and the shipmasters, those who have benefited from this king, uh, from this great city, but now they're beating feet. They're going to separate themselves because they see this great uh, uh, disaster that's coming upon them. But they're weeping. They're sad about the loss of everything. But what's the reaction in heaven in verse 20? Uh, rejoicing. Yeah. That, 
Does that not catch you a little bit by surprise, though? When I, when I was reading it um, just a moment ago for you, it, it caught me just, you go from the, the one mourning and wailing yes. to rejoicing. Of course, you're talking about different people. Yes, right. yes. But, but God's judgment ought to bring about rejoicing. God's righteous judgment. And remember, this is based upon, or this is being brought upon people who have received trumpets and bowls and warnings and warnings. You know, it's not that God is just wailing on these people for the first thing that they've done. Um, uh, God has tried to bring them to repentance over and over, and they simply refuse. And so judgment has come. And when God's judgment is pronounced, heaven rejoices. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be some, some pain involved in that, even for you know, the loss of loved ones and so forth. But when God's righteous judgment is executed, God's people rejoice because uh, God is sovereign. And he, what has he done in verse 20? What, what is this judgment? He, he's judged their judgment. You remember back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10, when the souls of the saints cried out from beneath the altar, how long dost thou not judge and avenge our blood upon those who, who killed us, basically it's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so in other words, they're crying out for God's judgment against the, their persecutors. And, yeah. and so the, the picture here is, you think of a courtroom where you have a plaintiff and the plaintiff is appealing to the judge for a decision, a judgment in the plaintiff's favor because of what the defendant uh, has done to the plaintiff. And that's kind of the picture here, the God's people crying out to the judge of the universe, uh, render judgment on our behalf, and God does so. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly right. And that's the, that is the perfect place to uh, draw our attention to um, is that fifth seal, um, the souls that are under the altar. Well, I think maybe we've got time to finish uh, 18, 21 through 24. Try it. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsmen of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain. On what, what a visual, you know, what a, what a powerful illustration that is being given here. And would you take any guess at all to say, if, if we found this in the Old Testament, what nation might it, might there be a similar illustration of a stone being thrown into the water to describe it's being thrown down? Yeah, Babylon. Uh, and so we, we referenced those passages about separate yourself, come out of her in, in Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51. And Jeremiah 51 concludes in verse 63, now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe <laughs> that I will bring upon her. And so, yeah, exactly the same thing. Uh, Jeremiah is being uh, given this uh, information. And uh, again, this visual illustration uh, of Babylon being cast down. 
um, uh, the, the harps and the music isn't going to sound anymore within her. That goes back to Jeremiah chapter 25, which is talking about the 70 years of desolation, again, tying it in with, uh, with Babylon. Um, uh, and so just this whole section is borrowing Babylonian prophetic language from the Old Testament, um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel especially. So Joel, Joel, uh, you know, that's, that's not, um, that's not opinion. I mean, you just see Babylon mentioned over and over again, and then you compound the effect when you go back and see in the Old Testament, all of the places where Babylon was being spoken of, and the phrasing is borrowed in the book of Revelation. And, and yet, obviously, Babylon was no more at the time that the book of Revelation is, is written. And we've made the case that Babylon is representing Rome. So the question that maybe some who are watching or listening would have is, why did he just say Rome? Why does he keep talking about Babylon? Yeah, and of course, the text doesn't tell us why, and so we're having to maybe draw a conclusion about that, but I think he's wanting us to, to look at what did happen to Babylon and uh, to realize God is going to do this again. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when, uh, when, you, when you talk about that and you use that, inf that language and we know how it ended up, I think in I part think that's, that's even more powerful. I think that's it's credibility. It's kind of like when when God talks about Israel's experience in the wilderness and what He did, you know, how He brought judgments upon them or punished them in this instance or that instance, and and how He kept His word as far as the promises are concerned. It, it's saying, "Look, people, I've been through this before, <laughs> and right. and and here's how it goes, and you can yeah. look back and see it, and it's going to go I, this way." Isaiah, yeah. Isaiah calls. Uh, Jerusalem, Sodom, and Gomorrah, um, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, so it's it's intending to 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 conjure up an image in our minds of what happened to that place. Yeah, interesting. We've been talking about this great city. What's going to happen to her? Ultimately, what is it that's going to be taken away from her in verse twenty-three? Uh the the joy. Okay, uh, even before that, at the beginning of twenty-three. Uh, light so, of a lamp. Yeah. And then we're going to come, and you might just keep this in mind, when we get to the end of this book, there's going to be another city that's going to have a great light that is going to shine eternally. Ah, okay. Um, and so, again, as we contrast two women, we contrast two lambs, we contrast, you know, all these different things, uh, these two cities are contrasted as well. I think that's so valuable. You're, you're hitting on that contrast idea through the book of Revelation. I hope we come back to that next week. Yeah, absolutely. Are we done? I think that, that, that's all I've got for chapter 18. I mean, obviously, we're skipping over a lot, um, uh, but uh, yeah, we're out of time, I guess. All right. See you next week.